0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Paul Ortiz, who will participate in a virtual panel discussion called Civil Rights, Equality, and Racial Justice in the Age of Black Lives Matter.
1: You can choose to live in concert and in amity or in friendship with your neighbor or you can feel that every ride your neighbor gets or enjoys comes at your cost.
0: We'll discuss Art Deco advertising from the 1920s. It had a clear purpose to sell Florida, to sell the dream of Florida, to be more specific. And we'll talk about the impact of the consolidation of Jacksonville government in 1967. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Florida Historical Society is presenting a virtual annual meeting and symposium October 9th through 12th. The theme of the conference is, 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs the Present and Future. Outstanding Florida historians, including Dr. Paul Ortiz, will be participating in a series of panel discussions. Paul Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. His most recent book is an African-American and Latinx history of the United States.
1: How I wrote the book was essentially it comes out of the classroom, you know, my organizing experiences being in the archives, and it's really my students that oppressed me over the years, both when I taught at UC Santa Cruz, but now at UF. I have a lot of Haitian American students, a lot of Cuban American students. And they often come to a U.S. history survey and they say, where are our people? You know, where are my ancestors in this national narrative? So I'm responding to changes more than actually probably making changes. The response to the book so far has really been remarkable. Um, I think, as you know, it's more about when you write a book than what is even in the book. And so now we live in a moment of backlash. There's a lot of uh, racism against, you know, Mexican people, Haitian people, African-American people. Uh, and so a lot of people are looking for answers. You know, where does the racism come from? But also, you know, what have been the social movements to challenge, you know, inequality and oppression? And I think that's really where the book is trying to, to engage in. It's, it's kind of part and parcel of its own, you know, of the time period that I researched and wrote it.
0: Ortiz approaches this new look at history from a very personal perspective, countering what he had been taught growing up and uninformed viewpoints that are still around.
1: When I was a child growing up in California, but also in Washington State, there was next to nothing about Mexican history except insofar as we were either victims or losers. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the Mexican-American War. Wow, that's really inspiring if you're if you're Mexican-American, Right. You know, we spent a lot of time going to I remember in California going to missions and even as a fourth or fifth grader asking, well, where are all the people here there? And the response was, well, they just vanished. They just kind of disappeared. And so it was kind of a haunting education and the education that we received. And I was born in 1964. And unfortunately, I have to say that. Going across the country and talking to young people today, I mean, in many places in this country, that education hasn't changed much. The kind of the the absence, but also the sense that we're second class citizens. You know, if you're a person of color, um, we haven't done enough to try to welcome people. And the other problem has been and what I really try to address with this book, Ben, is the question of nationalism, Uh, white nationalism, if you will, but nationalism writ large. And so we can complain about we have, that we have these resurgences of nationalism, but unless we as scholars do something about that and begin to change the frameworks in which we teach U.S. history, as long as we continue to, to, to teach nationalism, we'll get nationalism. So that's really what the book is trying to break out of.
0: In his book, An African American and Latinx History of the United States, Paul Ortiz looks at Haiti as a focal point in the struggle for human rights. He says that Haiti's struggle impacted the United States and the world.
1: It's the most important revolution in an age of revolutions. And I should say that, that this book is built on primary research, but also a lot of secondary research. People like Julius Scott, who is one of my professors at Duke, wrote a magnificent dissertation called The Common Wind and it was about the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the early U.S. Republic. For enslaved people in North America, almost every major slave revolt in the late 18th, early 19th century is inspired and in many ways keys on the Haitian Revolution. For oppressed people trying to to defeat Spanish and Portuguese uh, uh, colonialism in Latin America, almost every independence movement at, at a certain point ends up in Haiti looking for advice, looking for, for arms, you know, looking for ammunition. Uh, and even though Haiti is blockaded by France, Great Britain, and the United States, it's interesting when you think about this because those are three nations normally at odds with each other, right? France, Britain, the United States. But one thing they can, can agree on, keep that blockade of Haiti, strangle them because they know oppressed people all throughout the Americas see that, uh, that small island as a haven of liberty. And that's why Antonio Maceo goes there, Jose Marti goes there, Simon Bolivar goes there. And if you go to Central America now, and and, and the other way the book is personal for me is I can recall as a soldier in special forces in the early 80s, seeing um, homages to Haiti then, although back then I didn't understand it. Well, what does Haiti have to do with Colombia or Venezuela? But after doing research, it becomes obvious that the people of those regions understood clearly That so much of their liberty was based upon the Haitians first, you know, breaking the myth that European armies could not be defeated, but also throughout the long 19th century, you know, offering um, a a sanctuary, if you will, um, to people fighting colonialism in different contexts.
0: In his previous book, Emancipation Betrayed, The Hidden History of Black Organizing and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920, Ortiz argues that the contemporary civil rights movement actually begins much earlier than the 1950s. In his latest book, Ortiz says that the Reconstruction era following the Civil War should extend beyond the traditional ending date of 1877.
1: What I've learned from reading people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, not just reading that book, but rereading it. And I tell my graduate students today, you're not gonna get Black Reconstruction by Du Bois the first time through. I talked to Connie Lester about this recently, right? The great historian from UCF. And Connie said the same thing. Connie said she has recently reread that book. Isn't that interesting how, as we continue to grow as scholars and learn more, we realize how little we know. And what Du Bois taught me in rereading him was that Reconstruction was never again a, a single national event. Du Bois doesn't frame black Reconstruction like that. And so going back to it, it was in many ways researching the book, Ben, was very humbling. Because when I was a graduate student, even though I'd read Du Bois, even though he taught us an internationalist framework in Emancipation Betrayed, my book on Florida, I present Reconstruction primarily really as a national kind of event, okay? And rereading Du Bois taught me, no, it was never a national event. African Americans never thought of emancipation in one country. They were thinking of emancipation beyond U.S. borders. They were very much a part of an international black proletariat. And again, it was reading people like Cedric Robinson or Du Bois or C.L.R. James which kind of reminded me of that international dimension, which is the thing again, we can either connect the US to other nations, uh, other movements, or we can build walls. And right now we're in a phase where our leaders want us to build walls. What I found in the researching of this book is people trying to build bridges. And so you know, free people in Florida and Louisiana and South Carolina in their conventions, which are organized to fight lynching, to argue for the right to vote, they very often have uh, pay equal attention to the conditions of slaves in Cuba or Brazil. They talk about, I talk in the book about how there's a concern among black communities all throughout the United States about serfdom in Russia. uh, And the idea that unless, unless freedom expands, it's going to contract. So there's that very real sense of international thinking about these great ideas of democracy and liberty.
0: Many people familiar with American history will be surprised by the results of this research. Ortiz says that people of color have been having a significant impact on U.S. history from the beginning. It just hasn't been very well documented.
1: The research of this book, Ben, taught me that, yes, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa have had just as great, if not greater, impact in the U.S., even the idea of citizenship. And so a lot of the people I talk about in, in African American and Latinx history of the United States saw citizenship very broadly. They saw it beyond one border, which makes sense because they were a traveling people. If you think of uh, you know, Latino or Latinx history, African-American histories, we are predominantly working class people. We always have been, we always will. Um, as long as your listeners are, are alive, we'll be primarily a working class people who have to travel to make a living, to earn a living, to find a place, You know, if, if you will. And so that means that we have a much more internationalist conception of issues like work, like citizenship, like freedom. We don't necessarily see these things as tied to just one country. You know, I talk in the book a lot about the, the really intimate connections between the people of Mexico and the United States and how our leaders have had to go uh, you know, work overtime to, to get us to forget those very intimate bonds and connections and the fact that for, you know, hundreds of years, there really was no border between the two nations. Well, why why are our leaders now talking about building a wall? You know, the wall is, is not for our benefit. The wall is for their benefit. They want to weaponize a place that people generally have got along together pretty well, okay? They want to weaponize the war on drugs. They want to weaponize a border where people are primarily, you know, multilingual, you know, and they want to impose one language or the other on on those people. Well, why is that? And so I use the book to really uh, reopen these discussions about, you know, uh, really about building those kinds of symbolic bridges that have, have been torn down in our own time.
0: It's been estimated that within the next three decades, America will no longer be a majority white nation, Still, archaic policies from the 1800s continue to have an impact today.
1: You can choose to live in concert and in amity or in friendship with your neighbor, or you can feel that every right your neighbor uh, gets or enjoys comes at your cost. And that's the decision that's facing us now. Do we want to live in a society where we believe that in terms of democracy and freedom and, and culture, the rising tide lifts all boats, Or do we want to like build the walls, do the disenfranchisement thing, um, and and go that route? Now we know what that route leads to though. It's a grim road. You know, the the culminating point is Jim Crow, fascism, uh, you know, uh, uh, totalitarianism, one party rule. Or we can go the democracy road. And that's the road that African Americans have, have really charted for us during that reconstruction period. So that's where I think history becomes very, very useful.
0: The Florida Historical Society is presenting a virtual annual meeting and symposium October 9th through 12th. The theme of the conference is 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs the Present and Future. Outstanding Florida historians, including Dr. Paul Ortiz, will be participating in a series of panel discussions. Paul Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. His most recent book is an African-American and Latinx history of the United States. For more information on the Florida Historical Society virtual conference, go to myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, listen to archived editions of this program, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, if we look at the development of Florida, the decade of the 1920s was one of the state's most dynamic periods. Yeah, that's right,
2: Ben. For the first two decades of the 20th century, the annual population growth remained fairly steady for Florida at 2 to 2.5 percent. In fact, the state lost population in the years leading up to World War II, but if we look at the number from, say, 1921, when the population was just under a million people, about 997,000, by the end of the decade, it had swelled to almost 1.5 million people, which doesn't seem like much today, but that was an almost 50% growth rate. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons, for its entire history up to that point, Florida was a largely rural state with an agrarian-based economy, but the state had also, during this time, slowly began to profit from this burgeoning tourism industry beginning back in the 19th century. You know, a tourist season actually emerges and starts to kind of dominate life in Florida for at least a portion of the year. So when we say 1.5 million people, these are now permanent residents, not the seasonal visitors. That number would be much, much more if we counted all of them. Because every winter, many Florida cities, especially along the coast, just swelled with winter tourists. And people stayed here sometimes for months. But by the 1920s, these tourists were not the wealthy, elite Americans, and in some instances, Europeans, coming from the Midwestern and North Atlantic states and and crossing the Atlantic. But rather, these were more kind of middle class, lower middle class families who had access to an automobile, who could hop on a train and, and could now spend at least some of their winter time in Florida. Which brings me to another reason. You know, the 1920s were so important in terms of population and demographic trends. The almost 500,000 new Floridians that moved into the state during the decade, they were not all wealthy. As I said before, they weren't wealthy investors. But some of them were, you know, the poor, lower middle class farmers who would kind of scrape together a bit of savings, everything they had. And they gambled. They were gambling on this dream that, that is Florida.
0: So many of the people coming to Florida in the 1920s who were not wealthy investors were hoping to become wealthy. What kind of promotions were being created to perpetuate this idea that investing in Florida dreams was a good idea?
2: Well, a lot of it really comes down to just good old-fashioned marketing and, and salesmanship. You know, really since the 19th century, these Florida boosters began printing and distributing sometimes fantastical claims about the productivity of Florida soils, the benefits of cheap land, and this tremendous infrastructure improvement that was supposedly happening, including like the Everglades training and, and opening up all this vast acreage of, of the best muck land in the world. But the 1920s, however, the advertising was aimed at, at now the traveler, coming to Florida by car, or maybe a gentleman farmer, so not the subsistence farmer. So they were getting away from just kind of the plain text advertising. And it coincides with the period of artistry coming up, which really kind of takes control in these publications. So it's art now, not necessarily over content, but it supplements the content. Take a look at a few of these magazines that I pulled from the archive. This is a copy of the Florida News Real Estate Investor's Guide. It was printed in Miami, December of 1925. And on the cover, you see this over the top scene of people you know having fun on the beach and in the foreground is a woman holding a parasol in this elaborate flapper dress with a long pearl necklace gazing out from a marble floored veranda And it's a style that we know today as Art Deco, short for Art Décoratifs, which was really a combination of different styles and artistic movements from the early 20th century. And it influenced architecture, vehicle design, and, of course, advertising, as we see here, among many other things. So some of the core attributes of what we'd call Art Deco advertisement are, you know, what we see right here, rich color extravagant themes and a clear sense of what's being advertised. You know what they're selling here. They're selling an idea. It's the beach, just like we're selling today. So looking at it, it's simply bold and striking. Now, some of my favorites, and, and I think these are some of the best examples of Floridiana Art Deco advertising from the period, these are the covers of Sunnyland magazine. Sunnyland was published in beginning in 1924 by the Peninsular Publishing Company out of Tampa, and this was the premier magazine for Florida properties and really selling Florida tourism as well as an idea. Each cover is very simple, ties in with an article in the magazine. Here we have a bass swimming through the reeds underwater, you know, this beautiful red-colored bass. And then there are articles on fishing inside the magazine. Here's a June 1925 edition showing a man in a convertible talking to a woman who's carrying golf clubs. Uh, Just walked off the links, you know, you could see. And and then in the background, there are these three huge coconut palm trees and sailboats out in the water and this fire orange sky. I mean, it's just striking. So you can imagine, you know, these types of images would really hit hard with, you know, for example, a, a burned out insurance salesman who's shoveling snow in Detroit, especially in the 1920s. They were effective, and that's really the key takeaway with the Art Deco
0: advertising from this period. So does this style of Art Deco advertising continue in Florida-themed publications beyond the 1920s? For a short time, yes. In fact, here's
2: a great example. This is a 1935 edition of a Rand McNally automobile atlas, like you would buy today. But this was published in 1935, as I said. Includes all of the United States. But the cover is bold, striking, has these really straight, clear lines. It evokes this feeling of travel. You can see the cars driving underneath the 1930s-era cars. So, yeah, you see this continuing on a little bit. But after World War II, the advertising imagery really shifts again to reflect both aesthetic appeal for the time, and the audience, and the shifting audience. You know, the advertising the 1950s looks more like this pamphlet, where you have real photographs, sometimes some artist rendering, but it's looking at stylistically, it's, it's not as over the top, a bit more conservative, a little less color, but they're still trying to sell, you know, the story with an image. The draw now is for families to come and settle into these new suburban neighborhoods that are popping up around Florida, and for tourists to visit the, the myriad of popping up roadside attractions that are that are now all over Florida. We can take a look back now kind of nostalgically on the, on the art deco vernacular advertising at the time, it had a clear purpose to sell Florida, to sell the dream of Florida to be more specific. But today, many of these art historians, I think, would argue that the representative pieces have largely transcended into high art themselves. So they started out as kind of art for the people and art as had a very specific purpose. But now it's high art. And I would say, you know, if for no other reason, they just convey this sense of the roaring decade rather aptly.
0: Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the Art Deco advertising we've been discussing and find out more, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. In 1967, the city of Jacksonville's government consolidated with surrounding municipalities. Justin Lawson is a graduate student in the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History at Pace University and has this report.
3: In Jacksonville during the 1960s, the impact of white flight, the mass exodus of white Americans from inner cities following World War II, led to African Americans making up a majority of the population. However... In 1967, residents of Jacksonville voted for consolidation, reinstating a white voting majority. One of consolidation's main proponents was Earl Johnson Sr. He was the first black member of the Jacksonville Bar Association, worked with Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP seeking to integrate public schools, and he likely would have been voted mayor of Jacksonville had consolidation not occurred. Instead, by supporting consolidation of the majority black urban core with the surrounding majority white suburban county. Earl Johnson Sr. settled for becoming Jacksonville's first black councilman, and he successfully brought tax dollars that had been lost to white flight back into the city's coffer. I spoke with Earl M. Johnson's son, Earl M. Johnson Jr., about his father's legacy in Jacksonville and the impact of consolidation today.
4: He had to uh, struggle with the decision of whether to support consolidating the government, that is joining the county and city governments that would, of course, um, dissipate the black vote and move it from a majority or an emergent majority vote to um, what it is now. We're about, uh, black folks represent about 33%, about a third of the electorate in Duval County. He made the decision based at the time to join the effort to consolidate. He saw the ability to capture tax dollars from every corner of the county and then turn those into real services for parts of the urban core that had been overlooked for so many years and uh, to benefit other parts of the county. He saw that as a uh, overarching priority to having simply a black
3: administration. The vote to consolidate passed nearly two to one in a referendum on August 8th, 1967, with 24 of 28 precincts in support of consolidation.
4: At the time, Jacksonville's in the 1960s, Jacksonville's school system had been disaccredited. Uh, It was uh, one of the worst school systems in the country. So you can imagine how bad things were in schools in the black community, right? Throughout America with redlining, et cetera, has always been black communities and schools have always been second class to white public schools. And so that was a huge issue for us. Uh, Also, the issue of the utilities and infrastructure. There were roads in the core city that were not paved. There were parts of the core city uh, where you could not uh, get sewage pickup. So, uh, and and not not to mention the mismanagement and the duplication of services of all kinds between the city and the county. And so he made that decision. He became uh, secretary to the consolidation uh, to the governmental commission that recommended consolidation. Uh, The vote passed. The majority of black Jacksonville citizens voted for consolidation, as uh, did the majority of everyone else.
3: The impact of consolidation has been a mixed bag for Jacksonville's African American community. Today, about 35% of the city council is comprised of African Americans. Of the 50 years of
4: consolidation, there's only been four years of a black administration if you consider a black mayor a quote-unquote black administration. I would suggest that Alvin Brown had, uh, it it was a white administration in terms of the number of white folks, but just the notion and the symbolism, right, of a black uh, chief executive officer for a large city was extraordinary and as extraordinarily important, but we've only had a very short period of that in our large 50-year history less than 9% of it with a black mayor. And many would argue, I'm one of them, that the attention to the black community, those areas of the core city that were promised so much during consolidation, attention to those areas uh, has often been lost.
3: Earl Johnson Jr. continues to honor his parents' work and legacy, as well as pursue his lifelong calling to civil rights activism. As an attorney in the 90s, he litigated the Rosewood, Florida massacre case on behalf of the black descendants of the Rosewood Township victims. Today, he works as the founder of TakeItDown.org, the 1st nonprofit dedicated to the removal of all Confederate monuments on public land. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Justin Lawson, graduate student in American history with the Gilder Lehrman Institute at Pace University.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and this week, Justin Lawson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week and stay safe. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.